Matthew chapter 6. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it there. We're looking at a message on how to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You could call this the kingdom way. We're moving verse by verse through the book of Matthew. If you're able to, would you stand with us? We're going to read verses 1 through 8 together, and then we're going to drop to verses 16 through 18. Don't worry, we'll come back for a separate message of the Lord's Prayer together, but we're going to look at three topics that will make sense to us as we read through. So this is Matthew 6, verse 1. Jesus speaking, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that you may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full, verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Dropping down to verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Amen? We're going to say a brief prayer, but in order to do this properly, I'm going to go back to the music closet. So I'll see you guys. At, no. <laughs> Public prayers, okay. We'll talk about that in a second. Father, Abba, you have not given us a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You've adopted us into your family. We have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And so we want to have a proper understanding of what you're saying here. And we we, we want to have the freedom to walk with you in relationship. And yet we want to be careful that we don't put on a show and just do it for the sake of people watching. And Lord, we need help because we are prone to be people pleasers. We're prone to want to maybe please the audience instead of pleasing our Father. And so these words are important, Lord. Help us to have good understanding of what you're saying to us. Help us to have ears to hear how we can be about seeking first the kingdom and your righteousness. Help us, O Lord. We lay this time at your feet. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. The kingdom way, how to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You'll notice that in the very first verse, This is the thesis statement for the section, and it is beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. You could call that the thesis statement or the guiding principle of the sermon or the foundation. So beware, it's a warning. Notice Jesus is talking about righteousness here, and he says, practicing your righteousness, something that You should do, but you got to beware that you do it in the right way. Now, righteousness has been a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back to verse 20 of chapter 5, Jesus said these stunning words to the first century crowd. I say to you, 520 of Matthew, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is sobering. Dropping down to verse 33 of chapter 6, kind of looking at some bookends here, if you will. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
and all these things will be added to you. I'm sure you've heard Matthew 6.33 before. We have a 6.33 service we do, Sunday night apologetic services based on this verse. But how do we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? This is a priority statement. How do I do that? What does that look like in my everyday life? Well, Jesus is going to give us some insight into that. And this is not a full treatment of what it looks like to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, but these are three important aspects of how to do that. The kingdom way, if you will. Jesus, uh, the last verse of verse 48 was another stunner. He said these words, therefore, Matthew 5, 48, right before we get into chapter six, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And some of us, in hearing that verse, want to throw up our hands and say, that's impossible. And that's because our idea of perfect is a little different than the original language here. The the original language here, the Greek here is teleos. That's the Greek word. And the word has to do with maturity. And a parallel statement in your Bible is this. Be holy as I am holy. Now, God said that in Leviticus 19, And Peter repeated that in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1. And so holiness is our aim. You could say perfection is our aim. No, we're not ever going to get there. We'll, We'll never be as holy as God. We'll never be as perfect as God. But that is our goal. That is our aim, to be more like our Father, to have our minds transformed, to be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a work that the Lord's doing in us, but it's a work that we're also, you know, you could say cooperating. We're to walk that out. We're to walk out the good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So how do we do that? How do we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? When we open this gospel, we open Matthew, we talked about the gospel of the kingdom, and we said we are to pray the kingdom. We'll look at that next time. We're to preach the kingdom and we're to pursue the kingdom. So here we're talking about how we pursue it. Three simple examples. You could call this a three-point sermon. Jesus will talk about giving to the poor or our charitable giving. He will talk about our prayer life and he will talk about fasting. It makes for three, you know, good bullet points, if you will, if you're taking notes. And Jesus' main thing here is to contrast kingdom authenticity with hypocrisy. Now, we all have heard the word hypocrite before, and this will come up multiple times in Jesus' sermon. What is a hypocrite? Well, the original idea of the word, if you were standing there when Jesus was preaching this, a hypocrite was an actor in a Greek or Roman drama. And the term was not a negative term. In fact, all of us who enjoy movies or the theater or anything like that, we appreciate the talents of a good actor or actress. And we might say that person really got into the part. That person studied, you know, maybe a person from past history or a contemporary individual or even maybe a made-up character. And boy, they became that person. Maybe they became Abraham Lincoln or they became, you know, such and such or so and so. And we're impressed and we would applaud that. Well, in the first century, that's what a hypocrite was. He was an actor taking on an assumed role. And the word, when you look it up in a Greek dictionary, literally means to put on, an a, uh, put on a mask and assume a role. That is positive in the theater, negative in spiritual life. You don't want to be an actor when it comes to the things of God. In the proper setting, assuming a role... In the theater, in a movie, great. TV show, whatever, fine. We, we appreciate that. But don't be a hypocrite when it comes to the things of the kingdom. Example, you have a family, and let's just say that you get ready for church, and every Sunday that you're getting ready for church, you and your spouse fight in front of the kids, and you, you're vulgar, and, and you're, there's no semblance of anything Christian in your life. But then the moment that you hit the parking lot or the doors, you've got your church mask on. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. How you doing, brother? Oh, yeah. And your kids are standing there going. (laughs) 
That ain't who he is. That ain't who she is. That's a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not a person struggling with trying to become more holy, more mature in their faith. It is not a word about a genuine struggle with sin. We're all right there. I'm right there every single day. I struggle. I want to be authentic. I want to be pure in my faith. But Romans 7 says, I, there's another law working inside me. Paul says, you know, what I want to do, I often don't do. What I hate, sometimes I find myself doing. I think that's a very real struggle. And technically, though sometimes we might be hypocritical, we're not technically fitting the description of a hypocrite here. A hypocrite is an actor simply putting on a show and here, and I know you've seen it already, it's to just simply impress the audience of those around us, not our Father. And so it opens with a warning. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. See the phrase, to be noticed by them? That's a single Greek word where we get the English word theater. Don't put on a show for people. Don't make it like it's a theater. So the moment you pray, you know, you have regular, let's just say general vernacular, and then you pray and you go into only King James English because apparently God can't hear prayers except in King James English. Well, you might like to pray in King James. I'm not, I'm not putting you down for that, but I'm just saying, just be you. Just be authentic. God knows who you are. And what he cares more about is your heart, not a show. So just have an authentic faith. Beware. The Lord wants you to practice your righteousness, but there's a right way to do it. Practicing righteousness is a good thing. Paul says, practice these things in Philippians 4, the things that you've seen and heard in me. Practice these things. You ever met somebody and maybe you witness to them and you say, hey, do you know Jesus or do you go to church? And they say, oh, I'm this, I'm Christian or maybe I'm Roman Catholic, but I don't practice. And you're kind of like, you don't practice. What does that mean? Well, if I get a medical form, I check this box. Uh, if someone asks me, I identify as a Christian, but I don't practice. You know, in sports, teams that don't practice get beat. Amen? So we want to see what Jesus has to say about practicing righteousness, but the right way. Not in a theater to be noticed by people, not to put on a mask, because if we do that, look at verse one, we will have no reward with your father who's in heaven. Now you have a father. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. And there he is. And he is our main audience, if you will. And he loves to reward his children. I want you to see the positive side of this. Even though there's a warning here, the Lord has rewards for us when we do things the right way. And that amazes me. You mean the Lord rewards me when I give with the right heart? Yes. Even though everything I have is from him. Do you know the Lord rewards you when you pray with the right heart? It's a sweet incense to the throne of God. And he rewards you for that. It makes me wonder, what do my prayer rewards look like up in heaven? And when I fast for the right reasons and with the right motive, the Lord rewards me. And I will tell you that kingdom rewards are not just in the future. The kingdom is now. Amen? And while there is a kingdom to come, and you know, we, should the Lord tarry, we will end up in heaven, and there will be new heavens and a new earth. The kingdom is also now. And the Lord delights to reward his children now. Now, it's not always going to look like maybe a material reward, but it might be a spiritual reward, or it might be a material reward. We never know. And so the opening thesis statement, the general principle, verse one, the key word, righteousness. And these examples of giving, verses two through four, if you're taking notes, prayer, verses five through eight, and fasting, verses 16 through 18, are three things that we would say, when done right, they take sacrifice and they take time and discipline, but they can be a beautiful expression of kingdom life of seeking first the kingdom. But if they're done wrongly, and this is what the Pharisees did, these three aspects, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting, 
were a normal part of the scribes and Pharisees' religious life. And Jesus is challenging that. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, we, we learned from history. They prayed, and often it was ostentatious, you know, flamboyant kind of prayers to be heard by men. When they fasted, since the people knew what day they fasted, everybody knew. When they gave, it, it was more about impressing their buddies than it was about their Father in heaven. And so Jesus says, be careful. There is a kingdom way to practice your righteousness, and it is to please your Father who's in heaven. That should be our main goal. And so he says, when therefore you give alms or you give to the needy, verse two, notice it doesn't say if, it says when, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites. We've learned what that word is. It's an actor. As they do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, if this is the way it's done, they have their reward in full. Now, I looked up what does it mean to sound a trumpet, and I wondered if maybe that was literal, if there was some way that the scribes and Pharisees or other hypocritical people might sound a trumpet. Can you imagine if you were to modernize this, and let's say that you give to a charity or you give at church, and you have a band that accompanies you, and each time you give the band, you strike up the and so-and-so just gave this much money. <laughs> well, just know this. If you strike up the music on earth, there'll be no music in heaven. You'll have your reward in full. And we all can appreciate the attaboys, and we all appreciate, you know, maybe even being honored in the right setting. But if our main goal is only to give to get honor from people. That is the full reward, Jesus says. That's all you're gonna get, so you better enjoy it. Now, giving to the needy or to the poor was very important in the nation of Israel. It was actually in the Torah. Deuteronomy 15, seven through 11 reads this way. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. You shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. Beware, Deuteronomy 15, 9, lest there is a base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him because for this thing the Lord God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease, Deuteronomy 15, 11, to be in the land. Therefore I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. One writer says, by the first century, there was a well-organized system of relief for the poor based in the synagogues, providing something of what our modern state-sponsored welfare system aims to offer. The funding for this system in Israel depended on the contributions in the tithe for the poor. When Israel tithed, they gave three separate tithes, and one tithe they get, gave was every three years, and it was a tithe for the poor. And if you want to take tithing literally today, it amounted to 23 and a third percent of one's annual income because it included three separate tithes. So in ancient Israel, when you gave this offering for the poor, it was collected in the synagogues. And then if there was a poor person, it was given through, you could call, call it the first century church. Today, much of that is handled through government. And we know how well the government has done with handling stuff like that. The church has a major role in trying to reach out to people in many different respects, and this is a good thing. I want you to see something that Jesus said in Matthew 19. Flip over there with me. Look at verse 21, the famous conversation with the rich young ruler. The, the topic is the commandments and how one inherits eternal life. The young man says to Jesus, after they talk a little bit about the law, all these things I've kept, Matthew 19, 20, 
What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, that's the word perfect, that's the word teleos, same word as in Matthew 5, 48. If you wish to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have what? Treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now we know the rich young ruler walked away and did not follow Christ. If you ever wondered how you get treasure in heaven, this is one way. When you give to the poor, you store up treasure in heaven. Back to Matthew chapter six. That's something that Jesus will teach us later in this chapter. If you wanna know how you store up treasures in heaven, one way you do it is to give to those who have need in the name of Jesus for the kingdom's sake, if you will. Giving alms or giving to the poor was definitely a part of this uh, society. It was a good thing, but not when it was done just for show. Spurgeon says, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture of hypocrisy. That's the wrong way to do things. So what should we do? Verse three, Matthew six. But when you give alms or give your charitable uh, gifts, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, for most people uh, in the room, we're probably right-handed. And this is like a proverbial statement, like you, you could go about your day if you're right-handed and you would do a lot of things with your right hand. Maybe you start your ignition, you open you know, the lock of the door, you do a lot of things, you write uh, you're with your dominant hand. Your left hand might be little involved with a lot of things that you do, do during the day. You could say, in some ways, unaware of what's going on with the right hand. All Jesus is saying is this. When you're doing things for the sake of the poor or the kingdom of God, you don't need to keep a track record. Heaven's got that taken care of. God is the ultimate bookkeeper, amen? In Matthew 25, when the king is sitting on the throne and he's talking to the righteous who are gonna enter the kingdom, he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Uh, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And the righteous say to him, when did we do this? It's like they don't remember the good things that they've done, their left hand doesn't remember, if you will, because their charitable deeds are so much the overflow of their heart of God that we forget a lot of what we've done. I forget what I had for breakfast a couple hours ago, amen? And sometimes I'll have a person come up to me to use a personal example, and they'll say, Pastor Michael, you prayed for me a couple years ago about this situation, and I really felt like the Lord, you know, uh, used that prayer in my life, and, and I sometimes have to apologetically say, what's your name again, and what do we pray for? And I think that's okay, because I, I'm not trying to keep a track record on every single thing. I wish I could remember a lot more things, but the point is simply this. Jesus is just simply saying this. You don't need to be about that. You don't need to tell everybody what you've done. Heaven knows. And sometimes people will say this. Have you ever had this happen? Somebody will say, I'd like to give this to you and I don't want you announcing it to anybody because I don't want to lose my reward, bro. <laughs> Amen? And this is kind of what they're saying. And I don't think they would lose their reward if, if properly honored. There's a place for honoring people, but... You get, you get the point. Jesus is saying this. Look, this doesn't need to be about um, a track record of all the things that you've done. You don't need to sound the trumpet. There's no doubt in the early church that people knew that some people were giving. For example, Barnabas sold a track of land in Acts chapter four, laid it at the apostles' feet. People knew that. Ananias and Sapphira came they also donated some money, but they lied about it, and it ended very badly because <laughs> God knew they were lying. Authenticity, once again, not so much that everything has to be done in secret. You know, some people have looked at this, uh, verse four, that your alms may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you and thought, maybe I shouldn't, you know, when I give at the church, maybe I shouldn't have my name on my check. Maybe all of my giving should be anonymous 
And if all of my giving was anonymous, then I don't get a tax refund from the government. And all God's people said, <laughs> now let me just say to you, I take full advantage of a tax refund. I think that's just fine. But for some people, they've decided that giving anonymously keeps them from sinning. And I would just say this, if you feel like you're in that category where maybe you have a good amount of resources and anonymous giving is the bulk of what you do because you wanna be careful, I'm not gonna argue with you. But I don't think that we should put ourselves under unnecessary burdens. I think when we give, and just so you know, when people give at the church, um, I don't even know what you guys give and I don't wanna know. That, that's not my role here. So when people faithfully give, they give to the Lord and it's for his glory. Now, obviously a few people know what you give. That's how we have records and stuff like that, but you get the point. Your alms that you're giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret, isn't this amazing? He'll repay you. Turn over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. You guys remember the woman who gave the two small coins, the widow, and Jesus saw what she did and he said she outgave out everybody that day. Well, your father sees what's going on and he knows. Now, the, the beauty of God's om omniscience and omnipresence is that he's everywhere present. This is taught in Psalm 139. I, I had the privilege of doing an interview with Scott Furrow from KKLA. He hosts the Live from LA uh, broadcast. And they're, they're doing a Steps to Easter um, Series and I got to do something live with Scott that'll be on KKLA's website here soon. And we're talking about Psalm 139, specifically these last two verses. Look at David's prayer. He says, search me, Psalm 139, 23, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way, or we might say in the kingdom way. Now, David's prayer there is a, some people have called it a dangerous prayer. It's inviting God to search and take out all the junk out of my heart and my life. But it's based upon the opening verses. Look at verse one, Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. This is all positive because you can see David summing up the first section says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high I cannot attain it. Whatever I do, I do before the omnipresent, omniscient God who knows when I get up. He knows a thought before I think it, a word before it's formed on my tongue, a prayer before I pray it. And he rewards me for things done correctly. And the beauty is I can invite him in back to Matthew chapter six because he knows my father knows me. He's, it's relational. It's the beauty of what it means to be a believer. And so he says, look, just do what you do for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the king, and the Lord will bless it. That's the first topic, charitable giving. Second topic, prayer, verses five and following. And when you pray, Jesus says, you're not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Their goal is to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. I want you to Jesus, see that Jesus doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. It's assumed that you will be a person of prayer. And there's an expectation that we would all pray. They, the hypocrite, love to pray, but they love to do it for a show. They love to do it to impress people. Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your inner room. When you've shut your door, pray to your father who's in secret. 
your father, Matthew 6, 6, who sees in secret will repay you. The inner room phrase there, some have taken as a prayer closet. Many believe it was a first century storage room where maybe food and pots and pans might be. All it means is simply a place of privacy. Jesus often went away to pray by himself, but Jesus also prayed public prayers. In the book of Acts, there's corporate prayer going on. This doesn't mean that all prayer has to be just behind a closed door, just you and you alone. Jesus talks about two or three being gathered in his name and so forth. This is more about a principle of not putting on a show when you pray, but seeking your father. You know, if you're praying just to pray, if you have routine prayers that you pray, but they're not in alignment with heaven's heart, you might want to go back and revisit some routine prayers. Amen? Some of us have, it's come down to this, we only pray before meals, and some of you have to get a lot in before the meal because that's the only time you pray. So let's pray. The food's piping hot. In an Italian home, everything's been timed perfectly. There's been a lot of stress, a lot of tension, and onto the table it goes. The smoke's coming up. Oh, it smells so wonderful. And then someone decides to get all their prayer list in before the meal can be partaken of. And oh, Lord, save the people over here and bless them over there. And oh, something else, Lord. And on and on. And people in the prayer circle are not so spiritual anymore. Because the one thing they're thinking is the food's getting cold. Can't you pray before we pray before a meal? Bless the food and let's eat. And all God's people said, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> how do we pray properly? Well, we pray relationally. Imagine that you have a spouse and you talk to them 15 minutes a day and each conversation you have is this. You sit, you face chairs and you say, I'd like you to do this for me today, this for me today, this for me today, this for me today, and this for me today. And you have your list, and some of you are saying, that is my life! That's called a honeydew list! I told the first service crowd, I didn't even prepare this, but this may be some of your lives. You meet with your spouse, and it's a list. I'd like you to do this, 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 and this. And maybe they return the favor, and that's all. If that's all your relationship's about, there's something wrong. Some people say, why do we pray if God knows everything and he's sovereign? You pray to commune with him, not to just bring a list to him. Imagine if your relationship was like that. And some of you are saying, maybe it's become that. You heard the comedian who says he first got married to his spouse and he had his golf clubs and he was walking out the door and his wife doesn't make statements. She asks questions. Where do you think you're going? It's Saturday. And he goes, well, Sherlock, I don't know if you can figure this out, but <laughs> I got my golf clubs. means I'm going to the golf course. Oh, you are. He said, well, in retrospect, that didn't go very well. He said, now that we've been married for decades, when I have the golf clubs, it's a Saturday morning and I'm walking out and she says, where do you think you're going? I respond, I'm going to put these in the trunk of the car and mow the lawn. <laughs> in Jesus' name. Your father doesn't want your lists. He wants your heart. Now he wants you to bring petitions to him. James says you have not because you ask not. But he says, you ask and don't receive, James 4, 2, and 3, because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your own pleasures. That's not a relationship. That's my candy machine in the sky, and I pull the lever when I need something. And that's not what our Father wants. Imagine 
a relationship where verse seven, all you do is repeat phrases over and over again to your beloved partner. (laughs) That would be fairly empty, wouldn't it? Verse seven, when you're praying, Jesus gives us a little bit more. Don't use meaningless. The New King James has vain repetition. The word in the Greek is actually babbling as the Gentiles, that's the ethnikos, that's the pagans. Don't keep on babbling like pagans, NIV, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. Christian prayers are measured by weight, not by length. Meaningless repetition is empty phrases. Of course, the opposite of meaningless repetition is meaningful repetition. And the Bible does make a case for prayers to be repeated. For example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times the same prayer. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul prayed about the thorn in his flesh three times. Take it away, take it away, take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. You guys know the passage. In the Psalms, there's repetition of his love being everlasting. Repetition in and of itself can be the key to learning. And it's not necessarily bad unless it becomes meaningless. I'll give you two examples. I don't mean to offend anybody, but this is, I think, relevant. I grew up in a Roman Catholic household. There's many wonderful Roman Catholic believers, and they love the Lord. But when I was growing up, you would go to confession if you did something bad. And occasionally, Pastor Michael was there in the confessional, just occasionally. And you confess your sin and the priest would give you prayers to pray for absolution. And if you grew up in this system, it would be something like this. Oh, you did that? Seven our fathers. And then you get absolved. So here's what you do. The the prayer is biblical. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We'll, we'll, We'll deal with it next Sunday. But by the time you got to the third time praying it, all you're trying to do is do like what happened when you got in trouble in math class. I will never cheat on that test again. I will never cheat on that test again. I will never cheat on that test. I will never, and now you're just trying to get it over with. That's where repetition can become empty. But in this setting, there's no Roman Catholic church when Jesus is preaching. He's preaching to a Jewish audience. And in the Jewish context, I was talking to a sister after the first service. She goes, you know, Pastor Michael, that's very much present in Judaism as well. Imagine... Take a scene of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. They're there with their prayer books and they're doing this, right? And there's repeated prayers. Now, whether or not they're meaningful or meaningless depends upon the motive of the heart and only God knows that. But here's what I'm saying. There can be a danger in repetitive prayers if they become void of meaning. So I heard, I read a pastor who said, maybe what we ought to do is remove one of our routine prayers for this coming week and see what it does to our prayer life. Maybe there'll be nothing left and maybe that's not a bad thing because maybe we need to start over. Maybe we need to realize that communing with our God is wanting his will to be done and maybe a little bit more listening than talking and maybe it's something like this, Father, what would you have me to do today that would extend your kingdom? What do you want to say to me today? Yes, I have these needs. Yes, I know you delight to meet my needs, but I don't want my prayer life just to be about a list or a rote prayer or something I pray every single time the same way And now it's lost some meaning. I think you get the point. The classic example of babbling on in a pagan prayer is in 1 Kings 18 when the prophets of Baal, from morning until evening, you know, try to get Baal's attention. Only one problem, Baal doesn't exist, so they're not going to get his attention. And they pray from morning until noontime. Oh, Baal, Baal, Baal. They start cutting themselves. Baal, I'm bleeding for you, Baal. Baal, Baal us out of this one, Baal. Light the fire. No, he ain't calling back. I heard Tony Evans preach on this and he was talking about the contest and he said, yeah, the prophets of Baal were singing that song. Fire, bum, 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 bum. Anyway, didn't happen. But the Lord, <laughs> it's a 
you're like, what is he doing up there? What song is that? Who sang it? I forgot. Doesn't matter. And so they went on and on. They thought they'd be heard for their many words. On and on. Babble, 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 babble. Nothing. So sometimes our prayers can be substantive and short, especially before meals. <laughs> Therefore, verse eight, we need to move on. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't have to get into the weeds on current events with God. Oh, Lord, I'm not sure if you knew what was going on. But a couple hours ago, this happened on the corner of this street and that street. And he didn't need it. <laughs> now, sometimes the, deal, the detail is okay but the point is, your father knows what you need. And he delights to meet needs. But he knows what you need and what you don't need. Isaiah 65, 24 says, It will come to pass before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. This is about trust. Someone approached me in the foyer and said, if God's sovereign and he knows uh, what we're going to pray and he, he has his perfect will, do we, when we pray, do we ever change his mind? And I said, I don't think we change his mind because he knows everything. He's omniscient. But the question was going something like this. Do some things not happen because we fail to pray? Yes. James says you have not because you ask not. God says in the famous passage in 2 Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name, if they'll humble themselves and pray, right, then the healing will come. But if they don't, they won't. In Nineveh, there was a warning 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. They repented from the king down. You see the point. God does honor prayer. He is omniscient. He is sovereign but he still honors prayer. And if we don't pray about some things, then maybe the Lord will allow those things not to happen. Or maybe we'll have delays in things that the Lord wants to do. Final example, we move from giving prayer to fasting. We'll move quickly. Whenever you fast, and fasting was voluntary, even though the scribes did it twice a week, only one major holiday called for a fast, the Day of Atonement, and that was the fast day. And of course, that's been fulfilled in Christ. Whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites or the actors do. They neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head. We might say brush your hair, wash your face. I'll add brush your teeth, please. Brush your teeth so that your fasting will... Uh, not be noticed by men, but by your father who sees or who's in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, does this mean that when you fast, you don't tell your wife, so she cooks this beautiful dinner for you, you come home from work and she says, what, you're not gonna eat? And you say, I can't tell you. I, I take the fifth. Is it my cooking? Do you have a problem with my cooking? I can't tell you. I can't tell you what's going on. <laughs> now, I think that's taken to a ridiculous conclusion, and I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Of course, you'd want your spouse to know. Maybe your spouse will be fasting with you, maybe not. That's not the issue here. The issue is that you are putting on a show when you fast. So you show up at noon where your buddies normally hang out at the coffee place, and you come, and your hair is all disheveled. You got dry drool on the side of your face and they go, you, you come like this, you can barely stand. What's wrong with you, brother? I'm fasting. How long has it been since you ate? Since 8.30. And if it's a teenager, they're almost dead because they got to eat every 90 minutes. What's wrong with you? I'm famished, I'm starving. You ate 90 minutes ago, I know, 
And if we sound the trumpet and we're like, <laughs> people ask you to, face is disfigured. I'm frosted. <laughs> it's like, well, you got your reward in full, so you might as well soak up all the praise that you can get. How long? A half a day. When you fast, look normal, which I know is a challenge for some. <laughs> Sorry, that was poor humor. But don't be all down and moping around because you're doing it for the Lord. And when you fast, don't fast just to deprive yourself. Look, it's voluntary. If you fast just for deprivation, meaning, well, today I'm just gonna fast and deprive myself, and you don't make it about the kingdom, you may as well just eat. Or if you fast and say, you know, I really could lose 10 pounds. My whole life, I could lose 10 pounds. <laughs> Can I get a witness, anybody? But if your fast is about Old Testament examples, Esther's about to go to the king and risk her life. Fast for me, we'll fast. They're about to go on the journey from Babylon back to the promised land. We're fasting for the travel. A fast was often accompanied with repentance. David fasted when the Lord, uh, the child was sick through the adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the child looked like he was gonna die and David fasted and sought the Lord as best he could. And then after the child was taken, he got up and ate. In the New Testament, the church is fasting in Acts chapter 13. They're about to send out Saul and Barnabas and the Holy Spirit commissions them. Jesus says, when the bridegroom's taken, they will fast, but they're not fasting now because right now it's wedding time and the, the bridegroom is here. Fasting is voluntary. It needs to be spirit-led. And when we do it, whether it's a meal or two or a day or whatever you do, you do it with kingdom business in mind. That is, I'm, I'm decreasing the voice of the flesh. My stomach's gurgling, but I'm not gonna pay attention to that. I'm gonna read my Bible and pray about something specific. Maybe it's a, a, a fork in the road, a big moment in your life, whatever it may be. But you don't put yourself under unnecessary burdens and you don't do it for the show of people because if you do, you have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. But I wanna, I wanna end this on a positive note. But when you do it right, you do have a reward from your Father who's in heaven. And he delights to repay his children with blessings. I think about when the boys were small, I knew what they needed as their dad. Mom and dad knew what they needed. But it was always a delight to have them come and ask to, you know, maybe go out to eat or play catch or wrestle on the floor or whatever. It delighted my heart that my children would come to me. And I was blessed. And I think that's what our father is saying. Look, let this be about a relationship, not about religious activities. Let it be about the kingdom. Seeking first, that is our priority. Father, thank you for the attention of your people to this beautiful teaching from Jesus, our Lord. Thank you our great Savior and King, for teaching us the ways of the kingdom. We mentioned earlier <clears throat> that the kingdom is now. We're in it. It's being expressed through every Christian walking the face of the earth. It could be in Asia. It might be in Africa. It might be right here. In our country, Lord, the kingdom of God is the people of God under the rule of the king. And we've gotten a little insight into what it means to pursue that kingdom, the kingdom way. Would you help us, Lord, to realize that that's what we're part of? We're citizens of a greater kingdom. We live to please the great king. And we live to love him with everything we are and to love those around us as we would love ourselves. Some of these principles, Lord, have to do with our walk with you. Things that we do, ways that we give, ways that we pray, 
times that we fast. And all of them have to do with the beauty of a love relationship with you. And Lord, something that we celebrate is that you reward faithfulness. You're a God that repays and rewards. And it's so awesome to think about those rewards presently and in the future. And I pray that your people will be encouraged by the fact that you are blessed and pleased when things are done the right way. Help us to be cautious not to do things the wrong way. Help us to be as pure as we can be, Lord. Thank you for your grace for us, Lord, that we're in Christ Jesus and you already know we're not perfect. We're never gonna do these things perfectly, but our aim is to be holy as you are holy, to be as you, Lord. Would you keep your head and heart bowed just for a moment? Let the word of God sink deep into your soul. Perhaps this week, the Lord would have something for you that would pertain specifically to some of the content. Um, whatever he would be speaking to you, just take a few moments. Take a moment in the secret place, in the beauty of his presence, to listen to his voice, to let him lead you and guide you. Maybe there's a relationship that needs to be healed. Maybe there's a way that you've been walking that needs to be amended. Maybe you just need to thank him for ways that he's blessed your life and your family. Maybe there are some hurts that you need to lay at his feet. Whatever it may be, just remember, he is Abba, Father. And if he's not your father with your head and heart bowed, and you want to know him. He sent his son to die for you and to resurrect from the dead. And in order to enter the kingdom, you must receive Jesus Christ as your king, your Lord, your savior. You must receive what he did for you at the cross and through the resurrection. Ask him into your life. Something like this, Lord, I repent of my sin. I believe that you're the king. I believe you came on a rescue mission to die on the cross for me and rise from the dead, and I repent of my sin. I ask you to be my Lord, my king, my God, my savior, my friend, my father. Change me from the inside out. Maybe you've been a prodigal, and some of the warnings here have hit your heart that you've been maybe putting on a show more than anything else. Well, there's hope for all of us. And that just means you just turn away from that and just become as authentic as you can be. He already knows you. He already loves you. He knows everything about you. So just surrender those things that maybe you've been holding on to. Thank you, Father. We ask all of this in Yeshua's mighty name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.